This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Star Wars Report. Let's do the show, folks. Come, come, come. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. So we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton, and glad to have you back for episode 473. Count them down. 28 episodes left till we uh, close up shop here. And the longest ever obnoxiously long (laughs) Ewok dance party. Uh, in the world of Star Wars podcasting continues uh, as I bring on a good friend of mine and the host of Beltway Banthas. And I mean, a guy that I've talked had a lot of, of in-depth conversations and in-depth Star Wars conversations with over, over the years, but not enough on air. So I'm glad to have you on the Star Wars Report. Welcome to the show, Stephen Kent. Riley Blanton, nice to nice to talk to you. I guess we're on the march towards uh, episode 501st, right? Yes, that's the one. You did the math. Yep, 501. Very, very, very clever. <laughs> you know, I wish I could also take credit for it, but I can't. Uh, our our uh, producer, <laughs> Bruce Gibson, came up with the idea when I was talking to him about it. And yep, so we're doing it. I was Bruce like, you know Gibson, what? clever girl. Yes, yes. Uh, but no, welcome to, the, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you. Nice to be back. Now, so we have um, a good amount to talk about. There's actually been, this is going to be one of the more, since I made the announcement, the last few episodes have been a little bit more discussion-based, but we actually have a decent amount of news to cover. So I'm glad to have you. We're going to catch up with that, get your take on some of the recent Star Wars announcements, of which there have been a decent amount, a surprising amount for this last two weeks or so since we last got behind the microphone. Um, but I'm also interested in the second half of the show, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your journey as a Star Wars fan and the podcast Beltway Banthas and how it sort of landed you as this uh, sort of, I would say, political media pundit whose shtick, because you got to have a shtick, you've got a shtick, Stephen, and that is uh, Star Wars, like the Star Wars lens of current cultural and political commentary. So I'm excited every, to talk every about Every pundit it. has a shtick, you know. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's pop culture. Sometimes it's being a really bad comedian, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and you know, I like to, I like to, I like to stick to my Star Wars, and uh, it's, uh, it's been good. You know what they say: uh, stick to what you know, write what you know, and that's what you did uh, in your brand new book coming up that we're going to talk about. Uh, so I'm excited too. But you know what? For now, let's jump into the news. We have something to report. Sir, I have good news. Data brought to us by the Botham spies. We can send a clear transmission. There it is. Listen, listen. You know, I'm doing exactly what you shouldn't do for your opening news segment story on a podcast in audio format, and that's to talk about a picture. But I I actually had to throw this in just to kick off the discussion because, uh, Stephen, I saw on Instagram, there's an artist... um, uh, by the or who goes by the handle Brock uh, blank Bank Adam. That's hard to say. Brock Bank Adam. Uh, but he actually was posting some uh, Rise of Skywalker concept art. Now behind me in my um, uh, on my living room coffee table is the art of Rise of Skywalker book, 
which is really I mean, is well he done. The guy who did the art for the Colin Trevorrow uh, film that died, or is this just a guy who wishes that he had been hired to do the concept? <laughs> no. The, so this is actual art that was worked on for, I oh. think, yeah, that previous version of the film. It's a dark ray um, concept art, but it's instead it's sort of like the um, as as they kind of describe in the. Uh, caption it's kind of like dark Galadriel if you've ever seen oh her God, in, uh, yeah, like in her, the Lord of the Rings yeah the really freaky elf woman from Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and the eyes that look like she is staring into space and time and also just like straight through your soul yeah I, I don't like it I don't like it this is a very <laughs> this is a very scary piece of concept art just from the white hair to the red the red skin around Ray's eyes and it looks like she has chapped lips and like you know, mm. like wind burn on her upper lip. I, I, I'm, I'm frightened. <laughs> I know it's it's interesting though because um, uh, the the while it seems to be the sequel trilogy, if nothing else, continues to be a a constant when it comes to the discussion and and, and dialogue around Star Wars. But we keep learning these little tidbits of like the what might have been on Rise of Skywalker, especially. And I think one one common criticism that I think at this point, if you're listening to this podcast, is probably like, like you've heard it a million times, which is the like it wasn't well planned out, and it was, um, you know, JJ handing it off to Ryan, handing it back to JJ, and nobody actually outlined the story, and, and that's like a very common critique. But I actually think one thing it lends to is just the sheer number of ideas the sheer volume of concepts that were tossed around for particularly rise of Skywalker. I feel like there's like seven versions of this movie floating around. Uh, yeah, that seems to be the case. And you know, it always goes back to, you know, this creative push and pull between different figures in star Wars orbit. You know, there was, uh, I, I just got something in my inbox the other day saying there's uh, creative tension or people are butting heads between Lucasfilm and John Favreau over the newest season of the Mandalorian. And I just kind of like rolled my eyes and closed my phone after I saw that because I was like, wait, creative people are butting heads <laughs> over the future of a, of a creative product. That's exactly what is supposed to happen in this ecosystem. Like you're supposed to have creatives, butt heads over things. And then mm. the best idea rises to the top. Actually, yeah. the best idea does not rise to the top in most <laughs> cases, but an idea rises to the top and they get mostly consensus. And that's how this works. But, you know, I, I did look over the concept art for a lot of the Colin Trevorrow mm. um, version of episode nine. And it is one of those things where like the grass is always greener. Sure. And I, I can't not look at it and be excited about it because I have such sort of sour feelings about the final product of the rise of Skywalker. Yeah. So you, well, know, you and I are on Kylo Ren going to Coruscant and encountering giant wolves. That mm. seems very cool to me. Yeah, no, that's, that that's, that's fair. You and I actually, it'll be an interesting discussion because you and I definitely are on, on, on different sides of that coin when it comes to Rise of Skywalker. And that will, I'm going to uh, toss in this shameless plug right now. And that's kind of why I wanted to lead off with the story is that uh, Stephen and I are going to be on Beltway Banthas later this week to next week as we talk about the idea and, and some, I, I hesitate to even call them rumors, but the concept of continuing saga films in some form or fashion and what that means now, especially now that there's a little bit of daylight between Rise of Skywalker and The Mandalorian and the other uh, Star Wars projects that are coming out. Uh, so I'm, we're going to talk about that on Beltway Bantha. So here's my, this is my shameless like crossover plug. 
if you haven't, uh, go make sure you go check that out later this week. Um, but yes, so I, I I'll, I'll wrap it by saying the the some of the concepts visually I find definitely more interesting. But that's always the case with concept art. Concept art is always infinitely more cool than what ends up in the movie. Like that's just how concept art works. Um, but you do, I, I will say this, the art of books are the only official publication from Lucasfilm that give us more of a peek into some of the, what might've been, because even though the art of rise of Skywalker doesn't necessarily include uh, concepts done for uh, other versions of the movie, it certainly has a lot that was cut. Um, like a, a whole most like the Mustafar yeah, I mean, there's, sequence. There's like an entire panel of Dark Ray wearing a very similar costume to Luke in Return of the Jedi, standing mm. with a double bladed blue lightsaber around a bunch of dead stormtroopers. There's Dark Ray sitting next to Kylo Ren while he is on the throne of the mm-hmm. First Order. There's just kind of all sorts of baddie stuff on here. And it's totally fine, you know? Like, I think yeah. at the end of the day, like, people are supposed to think big Next and creative, up we have- and then you got to come back down to Earth at some point. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, a lot of the concept art that was exciting in Colin Trevorrow's uh, round of art was a lot having to do with the First Order mm. and Kylo Ren. There's a lot of scenes involving... Uh, Hux and sort of his arc and battles on Coruscant and Kylo Ren visiting the old Jedi temple and encountering all sorts of monsters in his pursuit of knowledge of the dark side. And in the end, we just kind of got, I think, a a very, very shallow (laughs) uh, approach to Kylo Ren's arc in that final movie. And, Mm. uh, you know, it was sad. Yeah, it is. There was, I think, a lot. George George Lucas even in... Um, the behind the scenes of Revenge of the Sith talked talked about all the characters fighting for screen time in that movie. Mm. And I definitely got a lot of sense that I think J.J. Abrams had a similar problem set with Rise of Skywalker, but it's almost sort of, but it'd be like George Lucas not having Attack of the Clones as a foundation. So like if you tried to tell all of that story in one movie. And so I think that struggle's real for sure. I like in the, in the concept <clears throat> art, you also see Emperor Palpatine in his in his cave on Exegol mm. and in the in the concept art this is miraculous he actually looks like Sheev Palpatine <laughs> he actually looks like Ian McDiarmid uh-huh. and then it, and then you you turn over and look to the actual final film and you're like who is that <laughs> who is that under that cloak and all that weird flabby makeup yeah yeah i, I it's a Hmm. You know what? I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it for um, save it for Beltway Banthas. We're gonna dig into Rise of Skywalker and then uh, some other uh, possible post sequel trilogy talk. But you know what? Rather than introduce this next news story, Stephen, I'm just gonna play this audio because that that's all you have to hear. That is all I have to hear. Bring me my family. Peace is a lie. is what the Sith believe. They promise power. Now they wield it. We face the greatest Sith in generations. They must be stopped.
a legend remade for PlayStation Five. You know, get somebody, ready. Some people's like happy place is the Millennium Falcon, and for some of us, it's the Ebon Hawk. Ah, nice. Uh, I like it. You know. Oh my gosh! I can't wait. Everybody to be keeps back talking on about and, Hawk I, you, and hang out with Cartho Nassi. <laughs> Sorry, I was totally going to go off there because I was about to have the same reaction. In fact, you know, people talk about Stephen Howell. They need to retheme Galaxy's Edge to be original trilogy. Uh, screw that! I want a live action, like full size Eben Hawk that I can wander around. <laughs> <laughs> in that, Galaxy's that Edge. Be, that would be nice, but I do second the idea of making Galaxy's Edge original trilogy. <laughs> mm. Well, get ready. For, well, I didn't even say the title, so here it is. Uh, get ready for the worst <laughs> Star Wars video game title of all time. <laughs> Star Wars. Okay, all right. Sounds good. <laughs> Knights of the Old Republic. Of course, yeah. KOTOR. So you know what? Remake. <laughs> Oof. Oof. It hurts so much. It's there in the logo, like the super gold sheen logo that's right there, and it's just oh, it's so Guys, ugly. You don't need to tell us it's a remake. We we understand that it's a remake. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, most of the people that they're trying to introduce that so it's it's done by Aspire Media, who's um, ported a, a number of classic uh, LucasArts games for new you know new consoles, current consoles. A uh, perfect example is the, um, and I've been playing it, the version of Star Wars Racer for the Nintendo Switch. It's so much fun, and it still works. Like it, it's, uh, The game mechanics are really fun on the portable platform of the Switch. I was playing it on an airplane like two weeks ago. It was really fun. But like what, remake, really? In the lo- yeah. It just feels so cheap. And they're, they're talking about all of this, like quotes from the developers that were released uh, are all about how it's, you know, the most ambitious project they've never, they've ever done. And they're not just like updating the it's graphics. It's the most it's ambitious a- project we've ever done built right off a template and going, <laughs> building it, building it according to the instructions of the previous one. Like, instead of like, hey, here's a box of Legos and go build a video game. We're like, hey, here's a box of Legos and here's the three-step process to rebuild this game. Now go do it. Yeah. It's not, it's not ambitious. Give me a break. <laughs> Well, here's I'd rather than me just say this is what they're saying about it. They they released a little blurb of the developer interviews. This is for the PlayStation event that they just held uh, yesterday. Next up, we have Ryan Treadwell. He's the lead producer at Aspire. And wouldn't you know? Just a little while ago, we got the announcement of a remake for Star Wars: Knights of the Old Republic. So, Ryan, I guess my question is: Is this like a, a remaster of the original game, or what's going on here? It's so much more, Sid. This is a complete remake of this beloved Star Wars story. For Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic remake, we are rebuilding from the ground up while maintaining that integrity of story and character from the original. So Ryan, how much of a remake are we talking about here? I mean, is this updating some graphics, adding some some higher resolution modes? You know, the original Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic is a true classic and one of our favorite (laughs) Star Wars stories ever. We want to honor that original story and make it as impactful for players today. In terms of the visuals, we have an opportunity to present this story with a much higher level of fidelity than was than was possible in 2003. Yes, we get it. Um, (laughs) I have two takes on this, Stephen. Number one, well, one this this video is hilariously scripted. Um, In the era of Zoom uh, events, where they're trying to like make it feel interactive so they're cutting back and forth between the interviewer and interviewee but as a person who does this and steven you also do this uh, for a living uh, in some capacity it's just they're trying you know what god bless them for trying 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I totally respect the hustle. They're doing what they got to do. They have to, like, approach, you know, PR for this project. You know, I guess, like, trying to come across as, like, really ambitious artists. That's, like, what you do. And I'm, I'm sure there is a, a huge amount of work that they're going to do here. I imagine they're going to recast, like, audio, and they're going to have mm-hmm. people redo the the script and, and re-readings of all the character stuff. That would totally make sense. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, it's it's just it's kind of the, the typical PR sort of pivoting and, and weaving your way through an interview. But, you know, I, I don't mean to like sit here and be a negative Nancy. I'm really excited about this. Oh, I'm and hyped. I think I think that it's I think it's totally warranted to try and retread this game. But I like the idea. I really do like the idea of remaking it rather than trying to do a modern adaptation where they do get too creative and go off the book. I want to see this game and re-experience this game. Um, you know, having it look good because when you're a kid and you play, you always imagine it more high def in your mind. Oh yes. And it, it will be an amazing thing to Mm. see on screen the way that we imagine the Knights of the old Republic story and experience having it actually be really fluid and amazing graphics that help you remember it. Cause you, you know, a lot of us, like we remember the promo videos for Knights of the old Republic, like Mm. the Sith storming the Jedi temple almost as much as we remember playing the games. Well, or in my case, a lot more so. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like those those movies or those videos that the promoted promotion of all that was just iconic in Star Wars fans' collective memory. It'll it'll be neat to see them capture Darth Revan and these cinematic scenes with Bastila Shan and Malak yes. in the same way. Uh, that would be amazing. And I it is I am hyped for this. Don't don't get me wrong. It's just kind of it's interesting how they're introducing it. And I will give them kudos. This is sort of my second take on the whole thing. As much as I've just made fun of the the title. The fact that they're like, this is such a great story and such an iconic part of Star Wars fandom, specifically Star Wars video game fandom, but I would argue like Star Wars fandom in general, um, that it, we're not going to change the story. We're just going to literally remake the game for a whole generation of people who've never played it. Like I'm, I, I, Steven, you and I are about the same age and both grew up playing this. And Knights of the Old Republic, like I can still remember the character names and their stories. Like this is from a game almost 20 years old. Um, but I, I still remember Johanny and Cartho Nassi and the Ebon Hawk and like the adventures of the various characters. It's just a, it was a really well done cast of characters. And at the time it was really ambitious because of the, you mentioned the voice acting, Stephen, but like the level of depth that they go to for voice acting and um, actually voicing all of the lines um, for all of the primary and secondary characters, it just gave the world a much greater level of depth. Um, you know, even the Lego games started off with a rah, 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 or you know the typical Final Fantasy it would just be the dialogue scrolling across the the, the bottom of the screen, but there'd be no yeah. voiceover. It's hard to explain how certain things like the Knights of the Old Republic gets to be such a cult success as it was where almost all star wars fans know what you're talking about in some way shape or form and yeah it's that that story just resonated and it was the choose your own adventure element to it Mm -hmm. having having the player be able to embody this light side character who is on a path either towards the dark or towards the light this is you know of course revan that we're talking about here 
and being able to see themselves in the character, particularly underneath the potential mask of the Darth Revan character in the end, that's just huge. That's a huge, huge thing to have in Star Wars where the choose-your-own-adventure element itself is canonized. And this is this is why I was thinking this week, and this is some of the, the fan chatter online about Darth Revan, is a lot of fans are talking about Darth Revan in either he or she terms, mm-hmm. right? And it's so funny because we're, of course, in this moment of like intense culture war over pronouns and gender and sex identification and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And Revan is a pop culture character in Star Wars with a huge fan base following who nobody knows what or who they are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Revan is like the definition of a they-them character. No, and quite I, literally. I'm really, I'm really curious to see how they approach it. Yeah. No, I in, in definitely, um, I think, uh, established new ground with making the character that you are you. And it, it kind of inserted yourself into the Star Wars universe by virtue of you being the one who make those choices towards the darker light side as you go and how that story would evolve in front of you. And it, it was so well done. Uh, I don't graphics, think they could do it again though, Riley. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think in this weird climate that we're in, do you think that they'll be able to approach Knights of the old Republic in a way that Revan's Revan's identity is still kind of ambiguous where every fan has a different understanding of who Revan is based on how they designed the character at the start of the game. I do, you actually, think, do you think I, they can do that still? So I, I do, but only because, and, and think of it this way, Stephen, they have the enormous benefit of the original character not being defined. And so by there is no, like, no, Revan should be this way. No, Revan should be that way. That's the only thing, that, the only uh, like visual design is, is his iconic mask. Um, but that's yeah. really it. Like, that, that's all you know about the character. So I think it's really cool that you can see... Um, I could see them being able to navigate that only for that reason. Mm, I hope so. I yeah. hope so. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit here. I want to talk about this story in the context of um, Lucasfilm Games. So I, I, I literally forgotten this was a thing until I was researching the story. Um, but uh, Lucasfilm Games literally only um, stood back up in January this year. So this is one of the first collaborative projects of um, Lucasfilm Games um, since they've once again opened up a division within the company uh, dedicated to games development. Now, it's they're not an in-house developer in the way that LucasArts was, but they wanted to open up their own division of the company that could closely work with these other uh, vendors, whether it's EA or Aspire in this case, um, or some of the other rumored developers um, that w- will, I think, I think we're going to see the fruit of a lot of off the wall, interesting gaming projects that might have n- otherwise not happened. This was a surprise to me. I'm not going to lie. And that there were some rumors out there. I just hadn't heard them that they were remaking this game. But so the announcement came as a big surprise to me, honestly. You know what? I didn't realize Aspire did the Jedi, uh, the Jedi Knight, Jedi Academy mm-hmm. games. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they did. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is a good sign. It's a good sign for a company pivoting and focusing back into something that I think informed Star Wars fandom, especially for those of our generation of the prequel generation that grew up with the original Battlefront and the, you know, I think of KOTOR, I think of the Republic Commando games, these parts that were, you know, just big parts of my Star Wars fandom. And I'm not even really a gamer that much. 
but I, I but still for Star Wars, um, Star Wars and gaming culture sort of united in those mid to late aughts. Um, Force Unleashed, another good example, a defining story in my Star Wars fandom that I absolutely loved uh, growing up in you know high school age ish thereabouts. Um, so I'm excited. I think it's the the larger context of Lucasfilm Games collaboration. The developer interview they we won't play it all, but they go into a little bit more depth about the collaboration with PlayStation and um, also with um, uh, Aspire Games and Lucasfilm Games to actually make something like this happen. So I think it's a really cool off the wall project idea, and I'm glad that they're they're tackling stuff like this. Well, I am just now dipping my foot back into gaming after mm, fifty. 15- years was possibly the la- was the last game actually kotor was that the last one <laughs> i mean like the last game that i really gave any real attention was like knights of the old republic 2 okay and i i kind of fiddled with red dead redemption somewhere in my 20s i can't remember exactly mm. when that was um but that was a long time ago I, I currently just got on a PC, and so I have Red Dead Redemption 2 now, and I'm working my way through that game and absolutely nice. loving it. And it's a good reminder of like choose your own adventure, sandbox style games with a narrative format embedded in it. That like Knights of the Old Republic is coming out now, this remake in a very different world where mm. the expectations for games like Red Dead Redemption and Knights Kotar are just going to be so high. So. Oh, yeah, maybe sure. maybe going with the blueprint is the best way to do it. Yeah, no, that's that's true. That's true. It's hard to mess up something that's already a classic. So yeah, fans I, what I, they want. Just I give will, it to them. <laughs> well, and that's where I'm. I'm actually I uh, give us more more nostalgia. I'm okay with this trend of Lucasfilm, whether it's Lucasfilm games or animation, just leaning into what's worked in Star Wars because uh, there's room for Star Wars experimentation, but there's also I think a lot more room for bringing in what we all know and love in Star Wars, uh, like a Star Wars Lego Halloween special. <laughs> Not oh, really. Riley. <laughs> You're a child. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. <laughs> I'm ridiculously... Listen, all right, listen to this. I'm not even going to play the whole trailer, but I saved this just for you, Stephen. <laughs> Be afraid! Be very afraid! Every story has a dark side. So, what do you think? <laughs> a little on the nose is what I think. Everyone gets scared, kid. <laughs> Without fear, you can't have courage. Aww. Lego Star Wars. Terrifying Tales. Here's B1496-1138. <sighs> little shining reference there at the end um <laughs> spooky I'll listen to the little the sounds all right make fun of me if you want i kind of like the little bit of heart you know it takes a little fear to have courage listen to poe dameron <laughs> poe dameron's my spirit animal in star wars you know what i could see that i, I definitely could see you two uh two hanging out and having a major bromance <laughs> I mean, there's not much more to add to it other than they're doing another Lego Star Wars special. Last year was the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, which I'm sure you watched, Stephen. Um, I did. I did. Wait, you actually did? I, I, yeah, I did. I watched it not on time. I, didn't, I watched it like in January. <laughs> I don't know why it slipped by me, but it was pretty funny. It was pretty good. Yeah, we um, got a couple good good laughs out of it. I'm trying to remember. There was some joke that Emperor Palpatine made that was like, 
Oh yeah, Emperor Palpatine in the holiday special was joking about Starkiller Base and how derivative it was. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, LOL. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the self-aware humor. I'm a big fan of the... Uh... Of the Lego Star Wars humor, I'm not. It's a good. Lie. It's a good medium to break down the wall of pretension mm. between the studio and the fans, and have like they they laugh at themselves a lot yeah. in the Lego franchise. And I've taken a couple peeks at it with my daughter. She doesn't care much for it, so my incentive to watch it is pretty low. Sure. Uh, but when we have watched it, I chuckled, and it was uh, it was fun. So. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I um I'm excited for it. I I'm mostly excited for the Lego Star Wars the long delayed Lego Star Wars Skywalker Saga, which they finally gave an updated release date for next spring. We'll see if it actually holds this time. Um it uh, like way to be late to the party. It was going to come out like right after Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I think it was literally supposed to come out like uh, beginning of 2020. Um, but I think there were, there was a lot of internal development issues, but evidently yeah. it's also like crazy ambitious. Like it's almost open world Lego game. Like they're trying to do something they'd never done before, which, you know, they just keep making, I will keep buying those stupid Lego star Wars games. Not even going to lie. Just keep... they are, they are making it for you. You are the target. <laughs> audience. It's uh, the problem is my fault is what you're saying, which is which is more than fair which is more than fair so that's gonna wrap up the news for this uh week uh guys um i'd be curious in your thoughts shoot us an email starsreport at gmail.com on your thoughts of the news especially if you're uh, like us and of the i would say kotor generation it's almost like a very specific subset of star wars fandom i think that experienced um star wars at that time but uh, i want to actually save the um the back half of the show to talk to you steven because um this is kind of our opportunity to more or less you've been on the show once or twice before but not nearly enough and i wanted to talk to you about the evolution of your star wars fandom a little bit and and kind of um what you've been working on since we started collaborating on beltway banthas back what last year i want to say it's last year right holy cow it's been almost a year (laughs) Yeah, it has been a little bit more than a year. Mm-hmm. My gosh! But what? What's your? Well, let's let's start with the basics because I don't think we had this opportunity. What is your like first exposure to Star Wars? How you got into it, and then uh, maybe walk us to through to like the the beginning of Beltway Banthas. Yeah, so that that's a impossibly large story. So I'll <laughs> narrow it down a little bit. I don't have major standout childhood memories Mm -hmm. of when I got into Star Wars. I have a a memory that's emblazoned in my mind of playing with the Return of the Jedi uh, legacy action figures with my younger brother in the 90s, you know, post-1990. 96 re-release of the films i had a luke skywalker toy from return of the jedi that i loved and valued and we just played 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 out in the dirt outside of my home in north carolina those are like my earliest memories and then after that like my star wars fandom was awakened by the prequels in a big big way and as a teenager when revenge of the sith episode three came out i was at sort of the peak of my star wars fandom and i at this point had friends who were also obsessed with star wars we had formed kind of a clique right Mm, and going out to the midnight showing of episode three was the kind of like maturing moment of my star wars fandom as a young person Mm. where like i went out to go see a movie with my friends wait till midnight with my friends not my not my parents not my dad not my mom but like my best friends wearing jedi robes Mm. costumes that we had designed ourselves playing you know uh, choreographed lightsaber fights out in the line up until midnight making friends out there in the fandom 
it was that was the moment for me that crystallized sort of my love of Star Wars and also the fan community. So, you know, Revenge of the Sith comes, it goes, and then Star Wars goes into slumber for 10 years. And during that time, I go to college, become a father, and by time uh, The Force Awakens has come out, uh, I've got myself a four-year-old. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, my life is just very different, just yeah. very, very different at that point. And Star Wars for me then becomes a thing about kind of raising the Padawan, passing the lightsaber and trying to share the tradition. Uh, Beltway Banthas, I suppose, is the next chapter of that story is when I wanted to start an actual Star Wars podcast and get involved in the fandom in a different way. But, you know, I guess we can go down that that what, path as well. I'm curious, what, what kept the like the torch burning for you those years after Revenge of the Sith? Was did, did you have your own sort of personal dark times like so many of the original trilogy generation did back in the yes. late 80s, yeah. early 90s? Dark, no, yeah, I had dark times. Um, so for, for the most part, particularly 2000... Mm, 2008 to 2014, my fandom went to sleep. So it just sort of went to sleep for a good six years at least. Mm. Um, but leading up to that, so after Revenge of the Sith, 2005, 2005 to 2008, I was steeped in um, Star Wars Galaxies. The MMORPG, okay. MMORPG play, yep. uh, multiplayer game, online multiplayer game, where you design your own character, travel the galaxy. You know, it's basically World of Warcraft, but Star Wars. This was my life <laughs> in between 2005 and 2008. I was so deep into that game. I had real-world relationships built out of that game. My best friend met his future wife on Star Wars Galaxies. No Their way. Their characters started dating, and then that eventually turned to real-world texting and eventually into marriage. Um, That's I mean, amazing. just like Star Wars Galaxies is a foundational thing for me. Mm -hmm. But then college comes in 2008, and I, I get pretty sidetracked with that. Ah, so you uh, sort of missed the Clone Wars window, which is where I – it was sort I of did. my – I did. For me, that threshold crossing over into like Star Wars fandom being like a part of my identity instead of just like, oh, Star Wars is cool. You know, so my older siblings are into it. For me, that was Clone Wars years later kind of in the same way that for you and your friends, it was that midnight showing of Revenge of the Sith. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. But, but Clone Wars was not part of my life. Yeah. Yeah, only after the fact. I didn't really go through Clone Wars till I went through it with my daughter, and we loved it together. Um, but no, I, I kind of missed the boat on that show. Interesting. And Well, where does, um, for you, where does um, Beltway Banthas kind of come into the picture then? So after 2015, I guess we are in the run-up to the 2016 election. I'm going to church in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, and I form a friendship at my church really based around Star Wars, a, a young man named Tierso. And Tierso and I both love talking about politics and also, you know, riffing on Star Wars. And then we sort of see in the 2016 Republican primary a couple instances mm. of Star Wars references being used throughout the uh, the campaign and by the candidates. Yep. And one of the moments that we really seized on was when Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio <laughs> duked it out on stage in the CNBC debate in Colorado 
and Marco Rubio goes at Jeb Bush's jugular mm. and they they basically just really fight at it, fight it out. And Marco Rubio comes out on top. And at the next day, there was a lot of media commentary. And we specifically remember this guy on CNN saying the 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 learner has become the master. And Tirso and I both kind of laughed at that because we were like, that's a Star Wars reference. Like when you say like the learner has become the master, mm-hmm. like that's specifically hearkening back to episode four and Obi-Wan and Vader's confrontation and the Padawan master relationship because Rubio was a mentee of Jeb Bush and Jeb Bush kind of yeah. raised him politically. And then Rubio eventually sinks the knife into his back. It was brutal. But the point that we kind of drew from that was that Star Wars is really baked into how we talk about things. We call people mm-hmm. our Padawans, whether or not we even mean it as a Star Wars thing or not. It's just sort of a word that we use. We talk about the light side and dark side casually. We just say like of a friend who maybe has formed a bad political opinion. We go, oh, they're kind of drifting towards the dark side here. You know, these are Star Wars ways in which that franchise, that story has melded with the way that we speak and relate to each other on issues of morality. And so we started Beltway Banthas. We, we've created this podcast dedicated to just focusing on the politics of Star Wars and how Star Wars appears in our politics. So we would both analyze in-universe stuff going on. So how does the Senate work? How does the imperial governorship um, you know, delegation responsibilities around the galaxy work? And also, how does Star Wars affect political people? So interviewing, you know, like Jake Tapper of CNN or, or Van Jones and mm-hmm. congressmen about how Star Wars impacts their political uh, and, and sort of ethical compass. Yeah, that's which is that's, of course, where I, I first started hearing you guys, because um, I would I want to say it was 2016 that summer um, I went to Celebration Europe and that's where I first became aware of you guys. And I still remember to this day, like thinking at the time when I was like, well, this is an interesting time to <laughs> merge Star Wars and politics together. Good luck. Well, yeah. And I think um, on the ground in Celebration Europe, so we my, my second co-host of the show, his name was Suara. And Suara was a listener of the show. He was currently living in London. Uh, when he was just a listener and fan of the show. And he reached out and asked about being a correspondent for the podcast. And so Suara went around uh, Star Wars Celebration Europe, and he interviewed uh, a bunch of people, yourself included, Mm -hmm. to basically, I think, just like pick your brain about the politics of Star Wars. And then we used that in an episode that Suara then kind of beamed in Mm -hmm. remotely. And uh, eventually Suara moved to the States. He moved to the D.C. area for work. And Tirso and I just like brought him right out to the house and we got to be got to be friends. And he ended up being a, a co-host of the show when Tirso exited. Um, it was really interesting. Yeah. So I remember when you were interviewed for our show, sort of on the ground, like a man on the street kind of thing, as well as like Brian Young of uh, Full of Sith. Yeah, it was it was that was where I first uh, got exposure to what Beltway Vance is what you guys were doing. And I still remember like in that conversation, um, probably my proudest moment and contribution to um, Star Wars rhetoric in general is the comparison of Chancellor Valorum and Jeb Bush, which is now kind of an even more obscure ref- reference. Please clap. But yeah, it was the please clap moment. <laughs> Just, I we made, see we made bumper stickers out of that. We made <laughs> we made uh, Chancellor, Chancellor Valorum please clap stickers, and we also made a very limited, like five five to ten mugs that came out 
um, for that, and it was absolutely hilarious. Oh, Terrence Stamp. Oh, God bless him. Um, What a great Star Wars character. I don't don't even think he was playing a character. I think he was bored. He didn't know what was going on around him, and that is Chancellor Valorum. (laughs) (laughs) Will you defer to allow the issue to be discussed in the committees? He was underappreciated. I will not defer. Um, sorry, as a fan of a sidetrack. Uh, well, I it's well. Fortunately, everything calmed down politically and and settled down, and and you ended, did not end up being in the middle of the most contentious political event of modern politics, and that is covering the twenty sixteen election. Do you still have any? Do you have any sort of um, takeaways? Maybe this gets into what what you write about for the book a little bit. So it might be a good time to plug it. But um, like how Star Wars came from being a universal language of how we talk about and compare, you know, what happens in our lives culturally. Like there's, it's just became this common language to now Star Wars sort of became political in those years. I I don't know. I I feel like you have a unique perspective on, on where we are now with Star Wars versus, you know, 2016. Yeah, well, it's it's a big it's a big arc, right? I mean, the way the way that Star Wars is sort of baked into the way that we relate to the world around us, particularly generational struggles and politics, is just the fact that Star Wars is forty years old. Yeah, because Star Wars has been present for so many different generations, it means so many different things to different people based on the experiences that they were going through in that time. So you know, there's a lot of discussion about kind of how Star Wars impacted the country at the tail end or post-Vietnam era, right? And kind of looking towards the 80s with a new sense of optimism. Then there's a huge foundational sense of how the Star Wars prequels kind of impacted the way that we viewed them and the world around us based on entering into the War on Terror and the Mm. post-9-11 version of the United States. We're filming or taping this on 9-12. And then, you know, the, the new films fit in in a very particular way. I mean, Rogue One came out in what, 2016, yeah. right? That's mm-hmm. a 2016 film. It's impossible. It was impossible at the time to look at Rogue One and the rift between the Rebel Alliance, between sort of these establishment types in the Rebel Alliance led by Mon Mothma and Bail Organa and their rift with Saw Gerrera, a more radical, ideological, and polarizing figure in the rebellion to what was going on in plain daylight in the Democratic primary between the likes of Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Like this was a moment where you had to look at it and go, ah, yes, in any sort of political dynamic, there's always going to be the radical, the the radical, the revolutionary, and the pragmatist, right? Mm. You're going to always have a rift in inside any movement and people who want to approach things different ways. It was hugely constructive to finally have the Rebel Alliance get some nuance because we never had that pre-Rogue One. And now post-Rogue One with Rebels and some of the new properties that have come out in that time, we now understand like the Rebel Alliance to be an incredibly fractious organization that had immense struggles with their resistance against the Empire, not because of the Empire being right or wrong, but because there's a right and a wrong way to fight. And that that primary, like the, the primary process going into the 2016 election is a reminder that like, hey, it's not just enough to stand up to this guy, Donald Trump, who's going to be running for president as the Republican candidate. We have to pick how we're going to fight. Mm. And I just I just remember like latching on to that and my audience latched on to that. And we all felt that this is why this is so relevant right yeah. now. 
it doesn't matter that you can recognize evil like congratulations and i'm not ascribing evil to to one side or the other here i'm just kind of talking about like um you know when you're looking at your opponents in politics it's not enough to recognize what you don't agree with or what you view as contemptible it matters how you choose to stand up against it Mm. that's what defines us yeah which is very closely tied to the story of rogue one in 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 a lot of ways when i think about it um, and I really appreciated your piece uh, on 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 your Substack on politicize me, which if you guys aren't subscribed to, you should. Uh, it's politicizeme.substack.com, and it's Stephen's um, newsletter that you do uh, just frequently enough. It's like you, you don't clutter the inbox, but whenever it comes in, I'm always interested, Stephen, in what your latest take is because you do look at um, uh, the world of politics and culture, but through the lens of pop culture especially Star Wars. And your most recent piece was um, What Star Wars Knew Before We Did, which is all about the um, the war on terror, the uh, the exit in Afghanistan, and the, the travesty that that became, and sort of the idea of, of, of the Star Wars prequels view of politics, in a way, um, which which kind of began this era you know the 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 prequels were coming out right at the right as the time as as the global war on terror began it's kind of especially strange for me and i thought it was particularly um meaningful to me as someone who like was both you know pretty young uh at 9 11 i would have been um 10 no just turned 11 years old yeah we're Um, the same age yeah i was uh and and so i i still i was old enough to understand at least on a surface level that the world was changing and i'm just old enough to like remember what travel was like right before the tsa i remember i remember like our family like going to say goodbye at the gate like that was a thing that used to happen when um uh i grew up mostly overseas so when we'd uh, fly overseas our friends and family would come say farewell to us and that was the thing you'd go to the airport gate you know that's obviously something you don't do now, but it was um, to me particularly meaningful as someone who's now in the military and directly supporting these kinds of operations. It was this sort of weird poetic thing. It was like a kid who grew up with the prequels that very much reflect the politics of the beginning of the war on terror, and being like an active part of of it as it closed down. It was just a weird feeling. <laughs> yeah, your story has really come full circle. You know, some of us get sucked into the ways in which the world are reformed more than others. And you're somebody who, you know, you are now living that thing that changed the world when you were a kid. It's, it's just sort of impossible to, to disentangle. Um, yeah, I, I just, I have a huge amount of admiration for the way in which you've kind of lived and stepped up. But one of the the areas in which I, I am most concerned just sort of as a citizen and as an American is that, you know, we are still living in the shadow of 911 mm. in a way that to me is not reflected that we have grown from it at all that we have like learned to live past it and move on in a sense um i don't know i'm i'm trying to trying to search for my words here and i i don't feel like i'm getting this right but i don't know i just i don't think that the lessons of 911 have really stuck at all um that you can't be masters of the universe, that the the affairs of the of the world cannot be controlled in the way that we might like them to be. Instead, I think we've kind of just become more paranoid as a people mm. and un- incapable of letting things go. Like this 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 year's 9-11, we're at 20 years, and you know, the slogan is still like, never forget. And I'm not saying that we should forget. 
but I, I do think we need to move on <laughs> as a people because this cannot continue to define us as the only thing that has ever happened to us or that will ever matter. Yeah, it is a, especially as it's, as it, as it came to a, a largely gruesome close, it's, it, it reminded me of the, um, what well, all war becomes tragedy and like what, what, what Star Wars handles it in an interesting way in the prequels because there's sort of a thing as like um, legitimate violence versus illegitimate violence. There's sort of the, always the idea and debate. And I, and I like how stories handle this because that's the lens through which I think about these things as, as a person who grew up with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia and some of these stories that are just like are ingrained to like my identity and who I am. And that's just how I look at these things. But like the idea of um, if you look at The Phantom Menace, there's a there's a form of of a very um, legitimate violence in encountering uh, encountering um, the trade federations um, overstepping an invasion, and you have the sort of the the rising against the evil empire, whether it's Return of the Jedi and the Ewoks, or whether it's the Gungans fighting the battle droids. There's this sort of there's uh, an era of the pure revolution that's represented in star Wars. And then on the, and then star Wars kind of flips the coin. And, 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 and I think this is beyond party politics. Uh, I think a lot of people talk about George's politics, which are clear, but I think when, when, when Lucas was taught his, while the parallels to the Bush administration are, are, um, are clear, I think he was, he was zooming out and telling a tragedy and that's where war always becomes tragedy. And it's funny because we just lived this the last few weeks. The, the ending of the war in Afghanistan ended in, in, a, in a tragic terror attack. Like, and how, how perversely poetic is that? It's, it's one of those things that's a universal truth of the human condition. And it's always interesting to me how um, these are sort of lessons that were ingrained in my head years ago just as a kid watching it um, when you think about it. Yeah, I and mean, you know, the Star Wars story... I think it's central ask of the audience mm. is to try and grapple with fear and uncertainty mm -hmm. in every trilogy. It's primary characters. Part of the hero's journey is them facing the extent to which they cannot control the things that happen in the galaxy. Anakin has to learn this the hard way. He cannot control the state of affairs that, you know, his visions are ha that he's having. He cannot be the master of the universe, and he pays the ultimate price for his failure to realize that. Luke faces the exact same thing in The Empire Strikes Back with his, his visions of Han and Leia suffering mm. and his belief that he must somehow be the one to step in and stop this from happening because he's some sort of master of the universe as well. He loses a hand, and he's really not any better off by the end of it for having gone against the way that the universe was going to go anyways. Star Wars is asking us all the time to do this, particularly the prequel trilogy. It's what it's all about is this tragedy of good intentions. And, you know, I, I, I just sort of deeply frustrated by the exit of Afghanistan, not because it ended in tragic terms, but because we thought it wouldn't end tragically. Mm. Like that's, that's what really gets me really angry in a, in a way is just because there's just this immense amount of hubris in our foreign policy establishment that this could have gone any other way that like you can stop people in this country on the other side of the planet from blowing themselves up for causes that they believe in 
um, and that people are just never going to be hurt. Like this is this is not a place where we belong. Our people shouldn't be in harm's way there. And we were never able to articulate a reason for why we are still there 20 years later. I'm just really mad. And I'm really mad at the same people who continually push this lie that there was going to be a better way for this to end. It's just not. And I, I hope that's not coming across as personal towards you. It's just like... No, I get it. What's it's funny because people always ask, like when they ask me, or for those of us who are in the military, there's always like, well, "What do you think?" And it's usually like a very representative of the general public because that's usually that's what the military is made up of. So there are those yeah. who still very adamantly kind of are on one side of the argument, or those who are right there with you, Stephen, when it talks about it. It's always it is an interesting and, and tough dynamic. Yeah, and that's the thing about like asking people in the military, like, "What do you think about it?" They they are the public. Uh, yeah. You know, by and large, they're going to be divided. But, you know, what the military is about is duty. <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, you're doing your duty. You 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 sign up, you do you do your job and uh, you protect the country the way that your leaders establish is going to be the way that you protect the country. And, you know, that's that's all you can do. I, I've always kind of thought it was a little silly to ask like military service members like what they think of a given issue because you know it's not that they don't think and that they're cogs but like their their role is duty and that's what defines them and that's what makes them brave um yeah so it's it's definitely not like a matter of expertise it's just hey i'm here to i'm here to do the thing because because no one else will yeah. <laughs> we have a vol- we have a volunteer military so someone yeah. has to step up <laughs> i mean it's it, it is how it works it's it's an imperfect system but there's a reason i believe in it like there's a um it's certainly woefully inadequate in so many ways but um when when you talk about the legitimate exercise of um a state's power like it's a it's a it's an important thing to think very seriously about and it's it's interesting because um i am part of and those slightly older those in the millennial generation are directly part of a there's a corner a slice of society that has has paid the price and had to think seriously about um about war and what it means and in and how it's evolved in like what we fight we don't fight nation states we fight we we tried and this is what we've learned the hard way it's, it's very difficult to fight ideas right um so it's it's one of those things that i've thought a lot about but it's a, it's a smaller corner of society that's had to um had to pay that price or had to face those consequences i think in a, in a certain way but in a, but that's progress in a weird way but it's I don't want to purely make that a um, you know uh, a fatalistic thing, but I, I it is almost um, a, a weird blessing of our society that um, war does not no longer means like nationwide suffering and shortage. But at, at the other time, like there was almost like an important reason why it used to mean that more. So it's kind of a I I will say this though that what Star Wars has does is it sort of it gives us these examples and, and gives us the opportunity to have these conversations about these ideas um, in a way that's probably more meaningful and impactful to culture than you ever could by just like purely talking about history or current events or politics. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why people always go to, you know, Star Wars as the modern myth, because we're not experts on everything in the world, but we are all parts of different stories. We're all storytellers, and the stories that we know impact the way that we see the world, and also the toolkits that we have to dissect the things that are going on in front of us. I I find it 
to be perverse and, and annoying how sort of like social media has put everybody in a situation where they feel like they have to issue a press release anytime something bad happens or anytime we're on a certain anniversary. Like like someone someone pinged me the other day and like, why haven't you said anything about 9-11 today? And I was like, do I have to? Is that is that a thing I have to do? Do I have to <laughs> do I have to like get online and like say this thing so that people will be appeased or like know that Steven has put out a private press release? It's absolutely absurd. And we're all like living in that situation where it's kind of expected of us. Yeah. Star Wars and, and other stories like, you know, the Greek myths, right? Like back in the day, like, you know, people would relate to what's going on in the world by talking about, you know, the plights of, of Hercules, right? And trying to understand the things we're seeing play out by the best stories that we have available to talk to our kids about the things going on. I can't talk to my daughter about the war on terror and the nuances of it without bringing up Star Wars simply because it is the best tool that I have for trying to explain stories in mm. which good intentions go awry, people try to control things, but they still get out of hand. Human hubris has limits, and we need to be recognizing our limitations to try to control the uncontrollable events of the world, You know, keeping order and chaos in check. Star Wars is how I can talk about that. I don't have like personal life experiences that would <laughs> that would offer me a lens in which to talk to my peers or even children about those issues. Yeah. That's why we care. And that's why we do Beltway Banthas. The Beltway Banthas is about trying to break down the complexities of politics and sometimes our level of discomfort talking about them. For instance, I'm very uncomfortable talking about the war on terror and 9-11, but like Star Wars is sort of a way to help be the medium for that in situations where you're not quite sure what you think. Yeah. Which is an okay th- which is an okay place to be. You don't have to be sure what you think. <laughs> in the in today's age, it's actually probably a relief if you can uh allow yourself to like put some thought into and not have to immediately have a an opinion on it because these well, things are complicated. Well, uh, that's why Naboo has child queens and Amen. child uh, child monarchs. That's, <laughs> listen, it, it worked hey, pretty well. Humility, man, humility. That's uh, that's one of my favorite things in Star Wars that I've learned in recent years. It's just like the reasoning behind the Naboo monarchy and why they're constantly putting children on the throne on that planet. And it is because they have an institutionalized cultural belief there and the wisdom of children. And the wisdom of children is that children are willing to say, I don't know. Mm. Um, that's why they have advisors. There's a royal advisory council on Naboo. But children are there because they soak up information and they humbly go in the direction in which they think they have the most information. And, uh, you know, that's that's the most we can ask of people sometimes. Mm. Yeah, well well said, well said. Well, let's cap the show. I want to I wanna have you talk a little bit more about the book itself. The title is How the Force can fix the world an ambitious project but i'm glad somebody's doing it uh mr stephen can't talk about life les- or lessons on what's the subtitle lessons on life liberty and happiness that's right from a galaxy far far away what was the genesis of the book did you always know that that you kind of had a book in you that you wanted to sort of bring these ideas uh to it and and kind of where where are you at now with the process because i know it's coming out soon yeah, so the book comes out on October 26th, How the Force Can Fix the World. So currently it is available for pre-sale on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and the likes. You can go get that now. I also just taped the audiobook last week, so that will be for oh, Audible. Oh, nice. You finished? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I finished. It was a, a three-day tape, a total of 10 hours in front of the microphone. Whew. Absolutely so much fun. 
and I'm going to be doing the entire read and that comes out complete with music and cool transitions between every chapter uh, next uh, next month. So do look out for that on all the places you get your audiobook. You know, I don't remember the genesis of when I was like, this is a great book idea. But basically sometime around 2019, I was looking at the state of the Beltway Banthas podcast. And I was like, man, I've just like learned so much and heard so many amazing stories about how Star Wars helps people see the best in others, mm. both on the right, left and center. I've had so many guests you know, radical socialists, anarcho-libertarians, staunch <laughs> social conservatives, squishy liberals. Like I've had them all on the show to talk about their love of Star Wars. And all of them tell me the same things, which is, for example, that they try to see the best in others, that they try to always remember that the person that they view as Darth Vader or Kylo Ren, that there's a person beneath there. Sometimes they are lost and in need of help. Sometimes they are screaming for help and don't know how to get it. But it's like it's an empathy machine. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's what Star Wars is. And so I was thinking about, all right, what are the other things about Star Wars that could help apply to our, our broken world? And one of them was uh, humility. I mentioned child monarchs just a minute ago when I was talking about Naboo. And so I did research about why Naboo has child monarchs. What does that mean? And then how can we connect that to real world examples of children really being conduits for incredible wisdom? And it actually comes right out of the Bible too, the book of Matthew. Jesus talks about why children are kind of like the most natural candidates for the kingdom of God. And it's because in Jesus's mind, children are the most willing to say, I need help. And, you know, Jesus, of course, and, yeah. you know, seeking salvation, you have to know that you need salvation. You have to know that you need help. And adults and their egos, like that's the number one impediment to ever even going there and walking with Christ. So humility was another one of the chapters that came about. I do a chapter taking on fear and paranoia, the war on terror and helicopter parenting. There's a chapter on free will. There's a chapter on hope versus nihilism. I look at both the Antifa riots and kind of um, um, political violence related to the summer of 2020 through the lens of hope versus nihilism. I also look at the January 6th riot at the Capitol through the lens of hope versus nihilism, and I outline how Star Wars offers us lessons on hope versus burn-it-all-down mentalities mm. to politics, sort of encapsulated by the rift between Mon Mothma and Saw Gerrera in Rogue One. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the book kind of came together as like a guide on how to live. It's not a political manifesto. It's not libertarian dribble. It's just like something that is meant to communicate to everybody of every political stripe how Star Wars offers us virtues that could make us better, happier people and maybe, maybe make our politics a little bit better. Mm, well said, well said. Well, uh, on that note, I will say this is... Um Hopefully this will make it real easy because I just made a pretty link for the Star Wars Report. So if you're listening, uh, go to starwarsreport.com slash forcebook because I know on podcasts it's hard to remember. Like you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. That takes you directly to the publisher page on uh, Center Street. You can uh, buy it from any of the vendors that uh, you would expect it to buy at starwarsreport.com slash forcebook. Like Facebook, just with an O-R, forcebook, starwarsreport.com slash forcebook. Uh, Stephen, tell everybody where they can find you on the internet and any uh, maybe final thoughts you have to close out the show for us. 
Yeah, I just I really hope people will go check it out. It is currently up for pre-order, and I, I know you're going to love it. If you are any 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 somewhat interested in current affairs and also your love of Star Wars, which is why you listen to the Star Wars Report. So I, I just hope you go get it and you'll enjoy it very much. There's a lot of original artwork in the book, too. I commissioned this really great artist by the name of Aaron Gray who does sort of Catholic-inspired art. And he did original pieces for every single chapter, as well as some promotional materials that are associated with the book that you can get uh, when the copy shows up to you in the mail. So very excited about it. And uh, thanks for having me on to talk about it. Steven, thanks so much. Uh, I'll tell you what, guys, it's been um, it's been a good episode. I've had a good time. It's it's nice to dig in. You know, I started off the episode thinking, well, we're just going to do more of a, a news coverage piece, right? It's not going to be nothing too crazy, but... Man, we, we kind of went we kind of went in, in deep there. I but I like it. I like talking about the parts of Star Wars that you know made made us who we are today. Made us who we are today. So, um, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, hey, make sure you check out the Star Wars Report, especially as we finish our countdown. Make sure you're subscribed if you're not. Uh, we're on pretty much anywhere you can subscribe to podcasts. Make sure you do so. You can also stay in touch with us in between shows at StarWarsReport.com. You'll find a whole network of Star Wars podcasts there, not just the Star Wars Report. That will continue on to include, by the way, a quick plug for them, uh, the Wampus Lair podcast. I just wrapped last week. I did a two-hour interview with them reflecting on my time in Star Wars podcasting, and we uh, we get all uh, – we talk about some controversy some controversial uh, topics on just just how Star Wars fandom has evolved over the years. So we uh, we pull no punches as we discuss the state of Star Wars fandom, podcasting, and the story of the Star Wars report. And I, it's, it was a good excuse for me to kind of reflect over the past 10 years of Star Wars podcasting, uh, but not on my own show because that would be a very self-serving. So uh, go check it out. It's the Wampus Lair podcast. If you guys haven't heard that episode, it was out net last week. Um, you can also shoot us an email, starwarsreport at gmail.com you can also follow us on social media we're on twitter at star wars report facebook.com slash star wars report and uh until next time i'm just gonna say may the force be with you oh and remember many boffins died to bring you this podcast And that's a show. Oh, and for the for those of you guys still tuned in, hey, make sure jump over. Bellway Banthas this week. We're going to be talking sequel trilogy things. I know, I know, we're doing it uh, on Beltway Banthas podcast. Check them out. We'll see you guys. Yeah, Steve, you can't go wrong with Miko. Some some good old seventies.